Luckily for you, the answer to the great question of life, the universe and everything is to be found in this podcast, A Worker's Guide to Everything. Sometimes cans, often bad language, always solid politics. This is the Trademark Belfast podcast. Listen out for trademark regulars and very special comrade guests and fellow travellers talking all things lefty, Ireland and the world. We remain, as always, anti-sectarian, anti-racist and anti-fascist. Enjoy. Buenas tardes. Hello and welcome back, people, to the Trademark Belfast podcast. I am Stefan Anuline, Manuel Gellegagat, Stevie is perfectly okay. I'm joined here today by our very own Dr. Sean Byers from Trademark and comrade Stuart McGill, uh, both of whom have a keen interest and plenty to say about the theme of this next series of podcasts, which we're calling uh, What the Fuck is a Stock Market? And perhaps What the Fuck is it for? Maybe even do we fucking need it and do we fucking want it? Um, and a special guest, as I said, Stuart's here today. Stuart is a man who has actually been in one of those tall, shiny buildings in the city of London, and not as a cleaner or a cycle courier, but actually as a financial analyst. So Stuart's going to give us a bit of his uh, insight into that world. We may also pull in some others who have dabbled in that murky world of money and power and finance to see if they can help us in our kind of clumsy attempts to, to, to pull back the curtain on the Wizard of Oz and see what the fuck he's up to uh, and why, of course, it matters to workers. because. As we've spoken about many times on this podcast, one of the jobs of socialist political education is demystification. It's the stripping away of those kind of multiple filters that blind us to what's going on around us um, and create what we think is our material reality, but what is often, what is often the, the creation of the rich and powerful. And we've spoken before about hegemony and how the ruling class create those popular kind of understandings, common sense understandings of how the world works with the assistance, of course, of the mainstream media and various institutions of the states, which convince us to support a system that supports them and kills us and kills our planet. So counter hegemony is what we need to be at to deconstruct, to delegitimize the status quo by offering another set of common sense understandings of the world that are socialist and progressive, uh, eco-socialist, if you want. Um, but as we do that, there's, there's nearly as much to unlearn as there is to learn about the world around us. And as we all know, since 2008, in particular, since the crash, as people's lives have become shitter, basically, as vulnerability to unemployment has increased, as poverty has increased, as insecurity arises, climate anxiety now about the future, unsurprisingly, that's kind of created this tension between pe- what people are actually experiencing and the dominant hegemony's legitimacy, because it's not supposed to be like this, is it? If you work hard and apply yourself, capitalism is supposed to look after you, supposed to provide. Um, and so it should be, for us, emperor's new clothes time. It's never been easier to point out that the emperor's bollock naked and riddled with syphilis. And by that, if the analogy was too nuanced for you, I'm referring to the multiple crises that we face in capitalism. And as, the, as particularly the kind of former social democratic left hang on desperately to the core tenets of neoliberalism, even as the right are deserting it, people look elsewhere for answers. And of course, we're faced with the, this perfect breeding ground for conspiracy theories and fucking black helicopters and the elders of Zion and vaccines turn you into Spider-Man and fucking you know, the belief that a secret group of wealthy people are controlling the planet. Whereas, in fact, the rather public group of wealthy people are controlling the world and sending cock-shaped rockets into space. And of course... They're controlling the world because because they own most of it. They're simply the ownership class. It's not complicated. Um, they get hold of it, large parts of it, because they inherit it. Government sell it to them through privatization. They take ownership of it through imperialism and control, um, and much of it facilitated through what we're going to be looking at over the next uh, series of podcasts through the, the capital markets. Um, and so we're going to look a bit at that stuff. We're going to look at you know that bit that comes on just before the weather on every news show around the world. Uh, and that's the Dow Jones and the FTSE and the Nikkei and the Isaac and, and 
the thing that's referred to often during parliamentary elections when, when they cut and someone says, well, how will the markets react to this? One of those few occasions when the mainstream media let slip um, and let us glimpse behind the curtain where real power lies, not in the theatre of democracy, but in, uh, you know, in the decisions and the, and the interests, the wants and the needs of the ownership class and how capital markets are central to, to that system of capital accumulation and ultimately control. So uh, in previous pods, we've tried to unpack some of this and we've had a good go at it, I think. And uh, of course, when we teach this stuff in, in working class communities and in the labour movement, we've had requests uh, to do a bit more on this, which is why we're here. Um, and we've been asked to focus our gaze on the stock market and uh, with Stuart Sean's help and some other guests, what do those fuckers get up to in those shiny buildings in London and New York and Milan and Dublin? Because there's no doubt that one of the most remarkable developments since the 1970s has been the, the massive expansion of financial operations and the extent to which the economy as a whole has become financialized. So we want to look at that. We want to talk about that. And today, what we're going to do is talk about what we're going to talk about to wet your whistle, if you like. And uh, we, we put out a request the other day and we've got a load of responses. I'm going to, we're going to talk to those responses first. But first, I'm going to hand over to Stuart and then Sean for just some opening remarks about, I suppose, about why, you know, why we should be interested in capital markets, lads. So Stuart, over to you first, mate. Uh, right. It's very simple. Uh, the capital markets are fucking huge and the impact on the economy is fucking huge, too. Uh, 2019, the financial services sector was 6.9% of the UK economy, which is rather less than some people would think, given the fact it's given so much preeminence by the uh, by the newspapers in particular. Uh, a large part of the sector is in London, half the sector output. Now, it has to be remembered, not all of this is going to be the bullshit part of the economy. A lot of this is going to be perfectly legitimate insurance, working capital, banking, personal banking, etc. Uh, the bullshit part of the economy is, however, very important. In the States, it's about 7.4% of the US GDP. Again, a figure that uh, some people would find surprisingly low. In terms of its impact, there was a study a few years ago from the Sheffield Political Economy Research Centre, and they reckon that the cost of the UK economy in terms of lost growth potential arising from an oversized financial services industry in the region of four 4,500 billion, which is a fucking enormous figure between 95 and 2015. Now, a large part of that is the compensation for the massive cock up caused by incompetent greed in 2008. Uh, a large part of it is also due to the short termism which a large financial sector imposes on the economy. Well worth having a look at that study. Uh, to put that figure in perspective, that's around 67,500 for every woman, man and child in the UK lost due to the financial sector activity between 95 and 2015. Other reasons why we have to be interested, this is something which people underestimate again, the growth of market-based finance. Now, market-based finance is basically the system of markets, non-bank financial institutions, investment funds, hedge funds, uh, which actually alongside banks provide financial services to support the economy. Uh, at the moment, according to uh, the Financial Stability Board or here, the financial they show that non-bank financial institutions account for 50% of the global finance sector's assets. Uh, again, a significant figure. During the global financial crisis, when the banks basically cut down the lending to corporates, net debt extended to these corporates from market-based finance was maintained. All the net increase in UK corporate debt between the end of 2008 and the end of 2020, excuse me, has come from market-based finance. 
The last thing here, margin debts. Basically, margin borrowing is whenever investors borrow against what they, they use their current uh, flow of stocks as collateral. So the portion uh, that they borrow to go ahead and finance a new activities is called the margin debt. Now, margin debt in the States is a mental. At the end of March, it was 822 billion, almost double the 479 billion level of the time, same time last year, and way more than around $400 billion peak that margin debt reached in 2007, just before the financial crisis. Put these numbers in some sort of context, that's about 4% of US GDP. This is people basically borrowing money from brokers to finance investment in the stock market. Individuals and investors, uh, a huge and largely toxic, toxic sector. Right, thank you. No, we knew that. That's, that's, that's a crucial thing I think we are going to look at, the idea that people are borrowing massively to speculate, not borrowing massively as, as is assumed under capitalism to invest in something that might actually create jobs or create, uh, uh, you know, a kind of a real economy, if you like, or growth in a real economy, although we'll get back to the issue of growth in another pod. Sean, what about you? What about why should workers, why should we be interested in what goes on in what can be very opaque and complicated and even chaotic when you look from the outside, chaotic stock markets? Yeah, well, Stuart's given some of the figures there, but you know, at the risk of going over the ground that he's covered, as he said, the capital markets are increasingly dominant in terms of mediating economic and financial activity uh, globally. So there's a number of aspects to this. Stuart's covered some of them. You look at the growth in the size of the stock market, which is fucking massive, and that's reflected in the increasing concentration of wealth and power amongst a small number of corporations and individuals. So if you look at how the, the wealth of Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk has grown, you know, you're not going to understand that by looking at the sales of their respective companies, right? Um, their, their wealth and the price of their assets has been art of, you know, inflated way beyond any connection to the, to the real economy. Um, Elon Musk, Tesla doesn't even make a profit, and yet he's one of the most uh, wealthy men on, on the planet. So that's one aspect of it. The second aspect, which again Stuart has touched on, is, is the shift away from traditional lending, from traditional banking towards an increasing role for the shadow banking sector. So that's a sector that's almost entirely unregulated. Um, it's bigger than the traditional banking system in many places, including Ireland. Of course, Ireland plays a, a crucial role in, in the global financial system. Um, and it's the source of... of economic volatility and instability and crashes. Um, so that's something that we need to, to discuss. Another aspect is, look, look, if you want to understand how government, corporate, and even household debt is issued, how it's sold, how it's traded and speculated on, um, then you need to understand how this system operates. And as, the last thing I'd say is that we need to understand capital markets because our lives are wrapped up in them in a load of different ways. Right. So a hit to the stock market through a global crisis or a geopolitical event can result in the loss of thousands of jobs through no fault of the workers. Um, we've seen the increasing role of so-called institutional investors, uh, absentee landlords uh, that they're playing in the, the housing system and speculating on in housing. Um, and another example for people who are lucky enough to have a pension, their pension funds are heavily invested in stock markets and bond markets. They're totally wrapped up in this and dependent on them. 
So that, that's a number of reasons why, why there's many more like, but there are a few reasons why we should be interested in this subject. Yeah, there's um, this, uh, the idea that we're somehow the stock market is separate from us or outside of our lives. And if it crashes, it won't. You always hear people say, oh, it's not real money. It doesn't affect me. And you're like, you couldn't be fucking more wrong, mate. So we'll have to unpick some of that and unpack some of that, as you said. One of the things we did last week when we uh, put out the post about this new series, we asked people to get back to us about what particular aspects of the stock market they were interested in. And they came back with a couple of answers. And um, and the, the one of the monomer mates come back and says, um, I don't even know what any of that means. And it was just the initial tweet we put out. And, it, and the tweet said, uh, a new series of pods delving into the history of the stock market, bonds, stocks, buybacks, big bang, short selling, derivatives, currency, and anything else we can think of. And I know bits of some of that, and I'm learning all the time. But this punter says, look, I'm on the left, but I don't know what any of that means. And I think that's fairly standard for a lot of people I meet. If they're that, as I said before, that opaque and chaotic, and it's kind of behind a veil, the stock market. And But as Sean's already suggested, we need to understand this because, of course, it's, it, it dictates so much of our lives. You know, if you've got a car loan, a mortgage, a pension, if your kids are at university, if they're taking out loans, the entire economy is so financialized that if, if it takes a hit, then so at some point will we. And, and that's the point, isn't it, though, isn't it? Because there's a lack of political education on the left, particularly about these things. Uh, and in the labour movement generally, and it's really serious issues. It's why people, I think, in a genuine and heartfelt way, and, you know, can believe they're socialists and use the term socialist to describe themselves while supporting capitalist trading blocks. You know, it's why the most widespread wogan on uh, the widespread slogan, sorry, on the left is tax the rich. What happened to seize the fucking means of production of that wealth? That used to be the socialist phrase and slogan. And now the only thing you see on the left are these kind of pointless slogans that don't go to the nub of the problem. And part of that, I think, is due to lack of political education around these things. So, look, Stuart, what about this idea of core concepts? What should we, what could we or should we be describing to people? Now, don't go into the description of them because we'll leave that to a, a later podcast. What, what are some of the kinds of things you think we should be looking at? Uh, big question. Uh, first of all, getting back to some of the stuff that Sean said, quite right regarding Amazon and um, Uber as well as an example of this. Mm. The stock market, those guys didn't make any money for a long time. They were backed by investors who were prepared to put them in a monopoly position, in which case they go ahead and exploit the rest of us. So that's a cool concept. They will try and build and encourage monopolies. Um, it's also important from the point of view of the housing market. I reckon in London, about 25% of the price of houses in a massively overpriced city is down to overseas speculation. All right, And uh, this isn't exactly a Scott market, but it's still, and this is getting back in a long way to your core concept, it's how the economic surplus is used by a relatively small number of people to cause massive dislocations and problems in the market. Uh, when you have a relatively small number of people owning a large part of the cash, they're going to invest in stuff which benefits them. Uh, and housing is a classic example of that. And uh, one of the things we'll come on to when we talk about uh, financial crashes, etc., will be the role of the property market in there. The property market has become an investment vehicle. And since bank lending was deregulated in the 70s, the banks have massively increased their lending to the property market because they get some inbuilt collateral. And I think now about probably about 70 to 80 percent of the bank's lending book is property related, which is one of the reasons why they're very dubious about an increase in interest rates. Anything which affects the value of property is going to affect the bank's book and we could be looking at another banking crisis. So it's how this stock market speculation and how banking speculation uh, can bleed into the real economy. 
I think that's a, a serious issue and we'll talk about this a little bit later on in terms of the genesis of financial crisis. No, that's a perfect one, actually, because if you're looking for an example of what people mean when they say we have a financialized economy, then housing is a perfect example, if you like, of, how, of what that means and how you can unpack how the modern capitalist economy works by looking at things like housing. Sean, what about you? Where these core concepts, which, which kind of ones would you like to look at? Well, look, I have to admit that I'm very much a passenger here. <laughs> I'm sat here to... <laughs> I've been saying sat, that for fucking years when you were working in trademark, mate, you know what I mean? But <laughs> <laughs> I'm sat here to listen to Stuart, but so I have to admit that I don't know nearly enough about the history of capital markets. It's something that, that would interest me. As you said, Stevie, we do a wee bit about the emergence of the stock market and how it's tied to you know the, the east indian companies and the uh you know the emergence and development of slavery and uh, particularly in in england um so I, I think that's that's an interesting aspect of it the history and i'd be interested in learning some more of the history of capital markets right through to the present day we also do some stuff in financialization from the 1970s onwards but i think it'd be useful to plug some of those those gaps and it'd also be interesting if you know, I mean, I have my own particular interest in terms of climate action, in terms of the role of, of uh, quantitative easing and central banks and propping up the stock market and stuff like that, history and a sort of explainer of some of the more complex concepts. I mean, you sent me you sent me some stuff that you had intended to discuss, and I saw something called Forex shares, and it scared the shit out of me, like... <laughs> I think yeah. Look, we're not gonna we're not gonna touch forex and foreign exchange markets and currency trading for at least three months because there's a lot of background reading to do. And Stuart's gonna come over and give us personal like training on that one because I tried to. I've looked. We do talk about currency trading. We do talk about what happened after 1971 and the end of the gold standard. And we are gonna we are absolutely gonna address the thing called the gold standard in these podcasts because if you under, try to understand the history of capitalism, history of the world, in fact. Um, you need to understand the role of, of money and of the gold standard over the last 200 years. It's absolutely crucial. And yet, if you speak to most punters, no one knows fuck all about that particular concept. That's the truth. So we are definitely going to hit on that history of some of this stuff, Sean, because I think it's really interesting because, uh, you know, I was even looking up there a few months ago about the stock market and the bond market and the bond market being the debt market. And of course, it pre-exists capitalism. It predates capitalism. It's been there since about 12th, 13th century. So it's a really interesting work to be done there and discussions you've had about how these various threads in historically came together and weaved together to form what we understand as modern capitalism by the beginning of the 19th century. Sorry, Stuart, you wanted to pop in there, mate. Uh, no, just interested in what, uh, what Sean said there. It does it's a very difficult thing to demystify and it's particularly difficult we've actually worked with the bastards too i wrote a paper a while ago on uh, the archegos uh, and my comrade uh, richard mackey wrote something on greensill uh, now richard's paper on greensill was actually very good i wrote a paper on archegos i thought it was fucking great but a lot of people came back and said i did not get a word of that and i tried to keep it as simple as possible but once you mention phrases like total recall swaps people think what the fuck is that uh, and even though i put a diagram in there which i thought was quite good at explaining it comrades who i respect and have a brain find it very difficult so the, the demystification thing is difficult here it's one of my ambitions as convener of the political economy commission in the party over the next year to try and do this but it will it will not be easy 
Well, hopefully these podcasts will contribute some way to, to beginning that process of demystification and for building up our knowledge, because it's not just it's not just building up our knowledge about what goes on in the world around us. It's also unlearning what we've been taught about what goes on as well, because there's an awful lot of misunderstandings around the role of the stock market and the bond market and the currency markets and everything else. So we are going to touch on all of those and we will touch on some of that stuff that Sean talked about, the, the history of some of that stuff, because sometimes you, if you see the basic building blocks of it historically, you can follow that narrative through and then you can understand the changes to the stock market, particularly in the 20th century and particularly in the last 50 years after 1971. Um, another question that came through that I know we're going to do a separate pod on because you kind of have to, and you've already both alluded to it, is this idea that after the crash and COVID, and we can talk about the crash that was coming before COVID, and that's kind of, it's often said now that COVID saved the world economy because states had to step in to save the fucking stock market. Um, how is it that the economy globally has plummeted with 20, 30% decrease in economic activity across the globe and yet the stock market is up and for many people that's a really interesting introduction to this and it also points to what's wrong with the fucking stock market doesn't it the idea that the economy can be collapsing but wealthy people and people with shares in the stock market can be that their assets and the wealth they uh, control can be going through the roof Stuart you first on that one uh, it's relatively simple. When you look here at uh, <clears throat> the central bank in 2020, March 2020, announced a series of very big measures, including saying it would buy both investment grade and high yield corporate bonds. So basically, Christina Hooper, chief global market strategist and Invesco, the Fed can be very, very powerful almost omnipotent when it comes to the stock market. She said, not dissimilar to the global financial crisis, the Fed stepped in and that was really a catalyst for stock market recovery. So a lot of it's about confidence. This is one thing that Keynes got right. Capitalism is based on confidence. People were confident the stock market would be provided, <clears throat> would be provided for, looked after. And so they didn't withdraw from the stock market. So the power of the Fed, the same thing happened in the UK with quantitative easing. That was basically a way of keeping the price of assets up. Uh, and again, getting back to what Sean said there about inequality. Sean, you're much more than a passenger. We shan't be calling you Iggy Pop at any coming <laughs> moment. More than 80% of stocks in the States are owned by the wealthiest 10% of Americans. So those people did not suffer particularly, uh, nor indeed the institutional investors whenever things went a little bit tits up. And the same in the States, the relatively small number of people that control the wealth are able to look after. And because the stock market, well, basically they control the political power. So the political power keeps the stock market going. Uh, then those guys are happy they will continue to invest. And also a technical factor, interest rates are incredibly low at the moment historically, hugely low. When I joined the bank in 1986, I think they took the mortgage, that's why I joined the bank, they took the interest rate on my mortgage down from 14% to 2%. All right, so interest rates were fucking high. When you got interest rates at about 0.5%, there aren't many other places to invest apart from the stock market. So that's another technical issue apart from the political power of the people who run the stock market. It's uh, yeah, the last year we talked before about where I'm is it the emperor's new clothes, this idea that there are times in history when you can look at something and just see it for what it is. And government state intervention, central bank intervention in the stock market during 2020 was one of those moments. We see, oh, that's how the fucking system works, is it? That's what we mean by state monopoly capitalism. The state steps in to preserve the wealth of the top 10, 10% of, of, the, of the society. Sean, it was really clear, wasn't it, for us to what was happening last year? And you could see the state not, not, you know, not, not stepping in to save labor, but stepping in to save capital. Yeah, and I think that really points to the scale of the economic crisis that they were facing. 
you know, that they were fearing total collapse, you know, of a scale that we haven't seen in more than in a century. Um, like quantitative easing did take place after the last financial crisis, but the difference this time is the scale in which it's it's taken place. So like quantitative easing by the, the Federal Reserve doubled to about seven trillion over the course of the pandemic, um, over the course of one year, one and a half years. The Bank of England uh, quantitative easing, their asset shares doubled to 900 billion. The European Central Bank, uh, it kept increasing its its limits um, on, on quantitative easing to the point where it's said, you know, we're going to buy government and corporate debt without without limits. Um, so that's the scale of the intervention. Now, the theory is, I'm not sure whether they believe it, but the theory is that quantitative easing increases the money supply and this will go to increased lending and investment in the real economy, saving jobs and so on. Um, now, some of this did happen. Like if you look at the British government, the Bank of England almost entirely funded the British government's interventions during the pandemic. Um, and some of that went to, to the real economy. Um, but by and large, the corporate sector, the, the corporate class that, that uh, Stuart's talking about, has used this opportunity um, to borrow heavily uh, but in order not for investment, but in order to pay dividends, they take over struggling companies in order to asset strip them and to buy back their own shares to to drive up uh, their value. And I know that's some of the stuff we're gonna we're gonna yeah. Talk. I'm gonna look. We're certainly gonna look at share buybacks, which has come from a, something that was illegal in the 1980s to, to something which is now part of normal corporate practice. Um, Warren Buffett was up to it the other day. I read in the Financial Times he's just bought back 12 billion of his own shares and so artificially increased the share price of his mm. his own assets. But but of course that the idea of the of the the, the economy the stock market increasing whilst the economy is tanking, um, you know that eventually the share price of any company has to kind of bear some relation to the profits that it's supposed to be making over some time because there has to be a link at some point between those two things. Um, you know that. If the share price is 30 times the, the the worth of the company, then that means you've got to wait 30 years for some sort of payback through dividends. So at some point somewhere, there has to be, does there not, a correction of that relationship between a share price on one hand and the actual value of the profit. So does that mean a crash is coming or does that mean a subtle correction over a long period of time or what? Sure, just quickly to that one, does it, are we, does it mean a crash or are they going to correct this? Are they going to kind of smooth this particular um, trough and peak out over time? I think at some point people do expect a, a correction. Whether that turns into a crash, I don't really know. It seems at the moment, given the fact interest rates are so low, for one thing, that people are prepared to invest in the market in the expectation that the market will go up. And uh, with shares, you have to remember too uh, that the dividends are important. So uh, when you look at shares versus other investments, it's the dividends that make them actually stand out. So one of the reasons why corporate share backs are popular, all right, because then yeah, you, you basically hand out, um, you hand money to the shareholders. So that again gives the prospect of a return, even though the fundamentals might not be looking great. And again, you distribute money uh, in the form of dividends to shareholders that can keep them happy. Uh, long way of saying nobody really knows. There is an expectation, but. There are various things happening in the market now which are uh, mystifying people, including the yields on 10-year government bonds in states in the face of inflationary expectations. Nobody's really sure why that's happened. Uh, it's a time of uncertainty, but gold prices aren't looking particularly good either. And again, gold, you would expect, would have gone up given the fact that we've seen racked by uncertainty. So. 
Uh, a long way of saying, we don't know. Will it happen at some point? Yes, I think so. When they have to increase interest rates at some point, I think that will cause some kind of major correction. It depends to what extent investors are prepared to abandon the stock market and stick it into other securities uh, like cash. Remember, there is a huge economic surplus around now. There is a hell of a lot of money floating around which people invest and there are relatively small, there are relatively few numbers of ways of making a fast buck. At the moment, they think the stock market is the best way of doing so, so they'll keep it in there. Yeah, there's one of the one of the things that we I've got a question here. Actually, I wanted to ask, but maybe I'll, I'll wait. But well, I could do it now actually, because one of the questions that come up from the punters was um, why the stock market matters more in some countries or in some regions of the, of the globe than others. Um, you know, so there are some countries where the stock market is central to the wealthy and their assets and their management and their investments, whereas there are others like Germany. South Korea, where people aren't as keen to invest in the stock market and their investments go into other places. So what's that about? Why is there? Is that historical? Is that because of previous shocks? I know that there was a the dot com bubble hit, hit hard in Germany, apparently 20 years ago, and it yeah. kind of scared yeah. German investors away from the stock market. But the stock market's not dominant as dominant everywhere, is it, as it is in the Anglo-Saxon economies and the Irish economy? Stuart, do you want uh, to to a certain extent, historical, and to a certain extent, it's cultural. When you look at, um, like I say, look at Germany, the German stock market, look at my graph here, it's about 3.1%. Sean, Sean, just, just on top of it, Sean, here's a graph in front of him of the German stock market. I'm just, I'm just reminding you of uh, where, where he's at and where we're at. All right, carry on, Stuart. Sorry, mate. Awfully, <laughs> awfully unprepared. <laughs> Beg your pardon. I actually prepared for the meeting. <laughs> right. So, yeah, the German stock market is about 3.1% the size of the total world stock market. Yeah. Uh, the UK is slow, smaller economy, 7% the size. Yeah, so it's the Germans have always been a little bit dodgy about the stock market, and understandably so, some would say. Only recently have they begun to go ahead and put the savings back into the stock market because interest rates have been so low for, for some time. I think in 96, uh, with the dot-com boom, the German stock market started to pick up a little bit and people thought, this is cool, put the money in there then people lost their hell of a lot through the dot-com boom and Germany was put in the back foot for quite some considerable time as a result of that. Um, also, banks tend to have a more important role in the development of the German economy. I think even now, the big banks, Deutsche Bank would certainly expect to have members of their bank on the board of some of the big German companies. They have a good, strong relationship and German companies will generally look to the banks for finance historically rather than the stock market. Uh, and it's the same in France as well. The French economy is bigger than the UK's, but the stock market there is only 3.2% the size of the, uh, of the world stock market. UK 7%, 52.3% of the uh, total stock market is accounted for by the United States. Uh, Japan, 8.8%. Now, Korea is an interesting case. There's something which they call basically the Korean discount in that Korean stocks uh, are not particularly expensive compared to other Asian stocks uh, for reasons that people explain because there's no transparency in the market in Korea. Very few dividends are paid out. Korea is an interesting structure in that um, it says here, yeah, but basically Korea's major companies aren't single firms, but they're actually multiple businesses with extensive cross shareholdings. They're called Chebol. Any Koreans listening, I apologize for the pronunciation, and they're typically controlled by a single founding family. 
Samsung, of course, are massively important in this, the Samsung Chebol. The various subsidiaries account for around 20% of the Kospi index, the Korean index. So if you buy into Korea, uh, you buy into a market which has limited corporate governance, shareholders have very little power, there is very little transparency, and you're effectively buying into Samsung because 20% of that market is accounted for by Samsung. Now, does this matter? This is the interesting point here. The Korean economy has performed incredibly well, uh, given any capitalist priority over the last 30, 40 years. Last year, the OECD said South Korea growth was going to outperform all others this year. Uh, Germany continues to be an economic power. My God, they have problems, uh, but uh, Germany is the economic centerpiece and driving force of the European Union. So I guess the lesson here is you don't need a big, fully functioning and important stock market in order to thrive economically. Yeah, I was going to say, Sean, just to finish on that point, that's a really important point, isn't it? That understanding that capitalism works differently in different parts of the globe. And does that idea that the Anglo-Saxon speculative model uh, isn't the only way to run a capitalist economy. And of course, the Germans and the South Koreans and, and parts of other Asia show that investment patterns are different in those places. And might do they refer back to old ways of working so that investments go into, into industry, into manufacturing, into areas where, where other parts of the world and Asia particularly are just are, are kind of pissing all over the West? Yeah, I find, I find the cultural aspect of it interesting. Like, and then, as Stuart says, there's a historical and geopolitical aspect to it as well, I think. Well, this is me saying this with a big question mark at the end. Uh, you know, Britain was the dominant economic power up until the, till the Second World War. The US took over after that. And my understanding of it is that they used their power and the power of their currencies to, to build up their stock markets and their financial centres. Now, it looks like this is sort of backfiring on them ultimately, you know, that that model of financialization is is contributing at least to to their decline in sort of power and, and influence. Um, so like what Stuart says is, is correct. Like it'll be interesting to see how that how that plays out. Yeah, there might be an interesting uh, kind of aspect to this as well about how certain countries responded to COVID as well and how they were able to respond. Those that saw the state hollowed out to some degree or saw the state as a servant directly of the markets couldn't respond because they're, they're almost chaotic response. Whereas there are other parts of the world where the response was far more uh, on the ball and kind of kind of strategic and they, they dealt with the crisis uh, more more often whereas it happened in anglo-saxon countries it just seemed to be an opportunity to dip your hand way into the fucking till and to make billions and to you know to, that seemed to be the response look lads we've, we've come up to our, our limit 30 35 minutes we haven't got through half of the questions that the punters have sent in so i want to return i want to carry on there's another few issues we need to address before we get stuck into that um, first podcast on core concepts and some of the history of stocks and bonds. So we'll leave it there for today and we'll come back next week. And what we'll do is we'll, we'll continue through this list of questions that listeners have sent in to us and we'll kind of take them one by one. You happy enough with that? Yeah, sure. Very interesting stuff. Yeah. All right, lads. Thanks very much. And uh, we'll see us all again. Don't forget to look at the Left Block Patreon folks and sign up to that. L-E-F-T-B-L-O-C. foil. That, comrades, was Trademark Belfast. Thanks so much for listening in. We'll see you soon, either in the trenches or on the victory parade. Up the workers and slang of foil.